Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We explore topics that are shaping healthcare with specialists who are leading innovative change. What drives people to pursue careers in medicine? Well, physicians are definitely type A personalities who want to be the ones in charge, finding the solutions to the complex issues. But they're motivated by a commitment to serve and a commitment to service. Dr. Haig Antablian is committed to serving patients in urgent need, whether they're present in the emergency department or in under-resourced hospitals in Armenia. This UCLA doctor and College of Medicine Phoenix alumnus traveled to Armenia to donate $100,000 worth of medical supplies, ultrasound supplies, and medical training recently. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. And we're faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. Haig Antablian. Dr. Antablian is a third-year resident in emergency medicine at UCLA. I'm proud to say that he's a graduate of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Hey, we're really excited and looking forward to hearing about your journey as you've been combating COVID on the front lines at UCLA and LA is one of our hardest hit areas in our country. I was hoping maybe you could start us off first though with telling us about your trip to Armenia where you've traveled and donated $100,000 worth of medical supplies, ultrasound supplies and equipment. Very interested for you to share that experience with us. Yeah, totally. Um, so a conflict broke out uh, during a few months ago during my residency training, and um, I kind of followed along, um, was, was kind of looking at how things are going um, in Armenia in this region called Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and quickly I realized that, you know, there was going to be a need for help. And when a call came out for help um, for ER doctors, uh, I immediately message my program director and I'm like, I need to, I need to go, I need to do this. And she was super supportive. She helped me kind of arrange blocks so that I could actually travel to Armenia. Um, the trip itself was one of the most eye-opening trips I've ever seen. Uh, there were the scariest moments of my life as well as um, the, some of the most fun moments of my life. Um, we were, you know, able to make a huge impact just with regards to the medical supplies that were donated. And then also I got to teach a bunch of the physicians there and the residents, some of the most modern ultrasound techniques. Um, ultimately, you know, the, the, the scariest moments were, you know, like fear of the sky. I saw a bunch of like um, land to air missiles uh, that were launching up in the sky. And like, I didn't know if that was going to be within our like proximity. Um, saw a bunch of, you know, military personnel. There were a lot of gruesome moments, a lot of morbid moments, um, very sad moments but um, also very, very good moments where we were able to save a bunch of lives. So it was a fantastic experience um, and one that's going to be a highlight of my life for sure. Yeah, that awesome. perspective definitely comes through with that concept of uh, dedicated towards service. I'm assuming that most of the patients that you were dealing with in Armenia were war-related injuries as opposed to what we may see in either pre or current COVID times. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was <clears throat> there was a huge COVID pandemic going on during the war as well. And, you know, it's it's really difficult to juggle a pandemic with an active war going on. And all of the hospitals were kind of um, shifting COVID to almost outpatient settings. 
So on one hand, you had, you know, hospitals just full of soldiers. And then on the other hand, you had a bunch of people suffering from the pandemic that were told to kind of isolate at home with like oxygen tanks. So it was a very, very interesting kind of um, uh, conflict just on both fronts, both the pandemic and the war front. Um, ultimately, um, I was there when the war ended as well. And um, I was there during the peak, the end, and then right after the end when you saw a bunch of refugees kind of coming in. And uh, that was a really interesting time too, because now the patient population became almost a primary care patient population. People that didn't have much medical aid prior, you know, you're examining them for primary care needs as well. So that's, that's quite interesting. I'm trying to put myself in your mindset on the airplane over to Armenia, where you're expecting to see war-related emergency cases and have probably zero experience with it. You know, so you, you have to learn from them while trying to teach them at the same time. So you must have gotten quite a bit of education both directions. So can you take us through that mindset of, of going to treat patients for something you haven't had any training for? I think um, with emergency medicine, I think with the types of traumas we've seen here at UCLA, um, I think you could kind of fit a lot of these patients in similar boxes to what we've seen you know, in the trauma bay at UCLA, um, whether it be gunshot wounds or penetrating trauma, blunt trauma. But yeah, you're right. The, the pathologies that we saw there, things like white phosphorus or cluster bomb munitions or, you know, just polytrauma wasn't something that, you know, any of us that haven't been in combat have seen. Um, but yeah, going there, you know, initially I'm like, I, I kind of came up with a manual for myself, like a, um, if this, then this kind of situation. I came up with a list of drugs and their dosages because I knew that I would probably be the ones administering them um, and not waiting for a nurse, you know, to kind of start an IV, do all that stuff. I practiced IV skills. Um, on the plane ride there, it was kind of like a, I wonder what I'm going to see. Like, it was almost like, a, I wonder if I'm going to come out of this really scarred or really happy. You know, it was a, there were a lot of emotions um, going there. But, uh, you know, it, you don't know until you're, you're there what you're going to see. and um, it kind of was a lot more fruitful than I expected. That's amazing. I was thinking you were pretty well equipped as an emergency physician as well, even for the primary care aspects. Not that we love this, but we know we have a primary care shortage and you're seeing a lot of primary care related presentations in the ER. So you probably had quite the appropriate skills for the refugee population as well. Totally. Yeah. So we, um, we kind of, I, I went over a lot of the primary care stuff that, you know, we, we do a lot in the emergency departments here uh, in Los Angeles and, and in America in general. Um, the, once the war ended, all of the refugees were primary care stuff. So I, I, um, I used like a portable ultrasound, the thing called the butterfly, to, to do echoes on patients that had heart failure to kind of estimate their ejection fractions. You know, we, we, I used every tool that I could to be like a one-stop shop for these uh, people because I knew that they probably wouldn't see a doctor for a long, long time. And, you know, you start them on medicines that you hope that they have follow-up for. So you'd give them the safest medicine um, uh, just in case they don't have follow-up. But that was a really interesting aspect too. And I think for a lot of people, um, a lot of people don't realize how, uh, how kind of intellectually challenging primary care is because you have such a wide gamut of things you're looking for. There's so many pathologies that can manifest and you have to kind of, have that spidey sense to pick up on the rarer ones. But 
you know, there were, there were some patients where we found, um, just with the, with the bedside echo, we found, you know, like aortic stenosis and we found, you know, all these other things. We found uh, dermatomyositis kind of rashes. And it was like, wow, like this medical school education is, is really fascinating that, you know, we're, we're able to diagnose these super rare things. You know, I just wanted to jump in. I know, I know, Johnny, you have another question too. With the with the butterfly IQ, the point of care ultrasound, we've developed our curriculum quite a bit, even since you graduated in that area, realizing how important it is. And one of the most rewarding aspects is when we go out to remote rural areas or to reservations and get to train providers how to utilize. Did you get to do some provider training while you were there as well? And totally, yeah, I trained. That. Definitely, um, I trained. Um, a good amount of physicians there with regards to the most modern ultrasound techniques. I took ultrasounds with me too, and I, and I donated them to local hospitals. Um, I trained them on, in, during the trauma setting, the FAST exam, um, kind of seeing where, whether there's intra-abdominal bleeding, uh, whether there's like pericardial effusions or cardiac tamponade, those types of things, whether there's a pneumothorax. You could do so much with ultrasound. Um, and I was really lucky to be able to teach a lot of the doctors there and have them utilize it. Um, and, uh, that was definitely a highlight. And yeah, I remember like during med school, we, we started learning about ultrasound and, you know, we were actually pretty comfortable with ultrasound by the end of, end of medical school. And then in residency, obviously you're, you're using it so much that it becomes second nature. It's almost like the next stethoscope. I, I, I really enjoyed listening to you talk because one of the ethos for the College of Medicine Phoenix is this lifelong learning and always wanting to be on the forefront and to see how rapidly you switch from, from trainee to physician to educator is exciting. And the opportunity that you got to see where you're literally practicing medicine, like, uh, uh, extending the reach of compound, not compounds, but devices to be able to do more, which is exciting. Um, I, I want to switch over to the COVID question quickly because in the Los Angeles area emergency departments, you're seeing COVID all the time. And there's a certain mental status that I want to, to get with, uh, to have you take us through. Is there a phrase, a quote, or something that, that runs through your head on your way to work or while you're at work to, to keep that motivation? to remind you of your passion amongst just what I'm assuming is chaos in the emergency department and then how that gets you through the day dealing Definitely. with all these cases. Um, we, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about me like helping out in the war situation and now it feels like I'm a soldier on the front line. It's such a, such a different switch now where I'm the one that's kind of like carrying the rifle against COVID. Um, Going to work every day, I think these last few days, it's, I've almost felt like, like I'm marching into chaos, um, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm ready for it. I know that this is part of my job. And even more than that, um, I think we've had such a tangible impact with regards to this pandemic that it's kind of incredible. Um, I think this pandemic has really framed what it means to be a doctor. It's almost you kind of understand a little bit of the self-sacrifice that, that goes into medicine, where you do put your life on the line, where physicians have died, where healthcare workers have passed away from this. Um, and I think that, you know, with, um, with regards to this pandemic, I've never felt so much more um, like I've actually fit in my calling than, than during this pandemic. I truly know that I needed to be a doctor now. Like I, this kind of sealed it for me. Um, and that's because we, we, are, we are doing 
I think like miraculous work in some ways with regards to this pandemic. And um, every day before I go to before I go to work, I'm always ramped up and excited. I've never had a day during this pandemic where I've been like, I can't like I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of I'm tired of this. But I mean, and there are days where you're you're dead exhausted. But to turn even one life around during a shift is kind of it 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 feels so great that I'm always looking forward to working. And this is me after like 10 days straight of work. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not burnt out at all from this. I think, I think I'm even more excited to go to work. It sounds like you walk into work with theme music playing in your head rather than <laughs> motivating quote, which is exciting. Yeah, you know, yeah. Entourage as you, you walk through the doors to, <laughs> to uh, save lives. Totally, totally. <laughs> Batman theme song right there. <laughs> Well, Haig, thank you so much for sharing your insights so far. I'm hoping, uh, we have to take a small break, but I'm hoping we can jump back in and talk a little more about the pandemic and uh, really kind of expand upon some of your previous thoughts. We will continue our discussion in just a moment. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital and the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and Associate Dean of Clinical and Competency-Based Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She is a family physician practicing at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagined Medicine Podcast. We're talking about commitment to serve with Dr. Haig and Tomlian. Haig, before we took our break, you had just started to touch upon your experience with COVID in LA. And it's, it's been, it, it's pretty significant. It was very interesting to hear you talk. I agree that, you know, one silver lining, and there's not meaning a pandemic, is how creative we've had to be as and working together and as a team and some of the things we've been able to accomplish. Can you expand a little bit upon some of the things that you've seen or done in, in your medical setting? Yeah, totally. Um, obviously this, this pandemic has stretched all of our capacities to its extreme, um, both regard, with regards to like hospital bed capacity, to staffing, to just medical resources. So we've had to be creative like since day one. Um, in the beginning, when we knew the tests weren't very accurate, um, a, lot of, a lot of people started to turn to actually ultrasound again to see whether we could diagnose COVID with ultrasound. And soon after, we figured out that, you know, there are specific markings you could see um, that would suggest COVID. And so even when patients had a test result that was negative, but they had symptoms of COVID and ultrasound findings of COVID, we would tell them, you probably have COVID, like isolate, take care of yourself. Um, Later on, we realized, you know, like the bed capacity issue that's happening in Los Angeles, that, that we could not possibly admit every patient that had these saturations. So we started sending people home with oxygen and concentrators, uh, devices that could kind of replenish that oxygen or, or kind of help them breathe um, uh, in their home setting. Um, and, you know, with regards to the, the medication aspect of everything, everything has been kind of innovative, um, whether it be the use of remdesivir or some of the other early antiviral medicines to now just simply steroids, um, which have been proven to be the most effective medicine. And of course, um, in, in the current state, we're using very interesting synthetic antibodies to see if we can kind of tackle COVID. Um, 
and then all the way to the vaccination itself, which kind of was really quickly produced and got FDA approval and is now, you know, kind of used widespread. Um, it, this pandemic has really shown uh, the, the abilities of modern medicine, as well as a lot of the faults within the medical system. Um, with regards to team approaches too, you know, in the ER, we're managing ICU patients long-term. We have patients that are in the ER beds for 72 hours plus because there are no ICU beds available. So we have had to learn ICU medicine again and learn how to kind of be inpatient physicians more than just emergency physicians. Um, so a lot of fronts here, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things that are great, but a lot of things we have to learn from in the future. Hey, I'm going to step in here because I'm listening to all the little aspects of the, the job for emergency medicine that have changed along the way. And I think one of the reasons that you chose to do your medical school training at the College of Medicine Phoenix is because of the history of the scholarly project program, which is sets you up to make an observation, develop a hypothesis, come up with a study design, and be able to evaluate those data in the context of other work. And it sounds like on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, you're, you're doing that process for the drugs that you're using, the supplies you're using, and even in terms of hospital management. Um, were there any, looking back or even while you were doing this, were there aspects of that scholarly project training that uh, you thought you would never apply that you're now applying on a regular basis. It's fascinating um, how relevant my scholarly project has been to, to kind of just life currently. So I did my scholarly project on viral replication pathways, believe it or not, uh, with Dr. Gustin. Um, and, you know, it, in the beginning, I was like, this is a really cool kind of way to learn immunology and kind of see how viruses work, how we how these, how our systems operate to clear viruses. Little did I know that, you know, a few years later, we would be in a viral pandemic where everyone is asking questions like what I had asked during my scholarly project. And, you know, with what I learned during that scholarly project, it was super easy for me to educate others, um, whether it be, you know, physician colleagues or um, just the layperson on, you know, the mechanisms of action of viruses, how they work, what they do, why it's important to vaccinate and how, how vaccines work. You know, it was, it, it truly was an eye opener. And honestly, a few weeks ago, I, I looked back at my recording for the scholarly project talk just to refresh my own self on how, how the interferon system works, which is the pathway that clears viruses. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> like this is what I did in medical school. Um, it really, it really has come like full circle and has been super useful and has helped me, um, you know, help others understand the, the severity of COVID-19. Can you take, thank you. Can you take it another step forward and say, based on uh, the writings and the ability to evaluate critically the information that was coming out because um, information in the COVID age came out so rapidly that being able to be a good steward and, and connoisseur of scientific and medical data was hard. Um, totally. And so were you well trained um, in that aspect? I, I definitely believe so. I think as physicians, um, part of our job is to be the best at evaluating literature. It's very easy for people to read an article and come to you and be like, hey, like, what do you think about this? 
it's, it's been the same with the vaccination people, you know, the layperson will read a tabloid headline, think it's a medically published, you know, like a journal article and come to you and be like, Hey, like, what do you think the vaccine causes sterility? And, that, and I'm like, you know, and, and it's up to you to filter certain articles to come up with the actual evidence-based uh, medicine. So, you know, for the scholarly project, you're writing a thesis that's like, that's doctoral level, literally doctoral level thesis. And in order to do that, you're jumping through so many barriers and hurdles and hoops that help you elucidate how to filter. And when you get to the end of medical school, you should be like the best in evaluating medical literature. And I totally think that that's come, uh, that's become super important. And that's kind of guided us um, in, in kind of figuring out what treatments to give and what not to give. Because, you know, if you look at evidence, there's grades of evidence too. How good is this evidence? Is a population correct for my population? Um, what were the side effect outcomes? How many people did poorly? You know, there's all these little factors you have to put in. And then how statistically significant is it? Is it statistically significant? You know, there's all these factors that you have to think about before you, you put a foreign medication into someone's body. And that's our job, you know. Um, there are so many times, um, like on, on social media, where people will send me articles, and I'll, and I'll try to just, you know, it, describe to them why something is inaccurate, or why something isn't studied well enough, or why the fact that only one person suffered from something might completely be unrelated from a bunch of people that is statistically significant suffering from something. So, um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think the Scholarly Project is... To be honest, when I was first doing it, I thought it was a pain in my butt. But literally looking back, I think it's been one of the most um, important parts of our medical school curriculum because it forces you to learn the scientific method by yourself. And, and it's, it, you can't teach that in a textbook. You can't teach that on a test. You have to go through those hurdles to kind of create your own filter for um, evidence. You know, Haig, I was listening, I'm thinking Dr. Gustin and the Kekron would be so proud. Uh, but I was also thinking that it is, I think by the time you finish medical school with our scholarly project in place, really good at teasing through evidence-based medicine, knowing um, how to interpret. But the other part and the tricky part is also having the ability to take that back to the bedside in a way that makes sense to the patient that's bringing you something that's not evidence-based. Right. And it sounds like you've had lots of experience doing that, especially in a busy ER setting uh, when you don't have a lot of time, so you have to really put that, put the evidence to the bedside really rapidly in right. a way that makes sense. Right, totally. Oftentimes people in the ER will ask for medicines that have no scientific backing for COVID. You know, they'll ask for mm -hmm. antibiotics or they'll ask for hydroxychloroquine or they'll ask for, you know, just a, a myriad of things. And you have to explain to them like, hey, there's risks associated with this. The studies don't show this. And, you know, um, some, I know some physicians that have come up with like a bundle of, of like paperwork that just kind of, shows you the evidence um, and you know that's that's circulated um, for me i like to just take the bedside approach and just just talk to them and be like hey um you know if i give you this medicine in this current state that you're in there might actually be more harm than good and that's you know one of the principles of medicine is do no harm um, mm -hmm. and so yeah we it's it's very important for us to know to elucidate some of this evidence um in order to to take that to the bedside and, and see what we're going to do how we're going to practice Right. And like you said, to validate the question first, a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Let's talk about that. So they don't feel uncomfortable or that you're dismissing them. And so it's, it's, it's quite the balance. And it our, sounds like our yeah. education, you know, if, if you were to look at us before med school or, or before undergrad, you know, we probably would have the same questions. You know, it's, it's so easy for us to look at a patient and be like, 
Like, how could you ask such a, such a dumb question? Like in your head, you might have that thought, but in reality, it's like, you've been, you've, you've been educated for, for 12 years on, on this topic. You know, like this is your, right. this is your field and you're the expert that they're coming to for advice. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely agree that, you know, patients, patients come to you from a very, very vulnerable position. And oftentimes all they need is the reassurance of your expertise, you know, and if you're doing the right thing, then, you know, if they need the medicine, you give them the medicine. If they don't need the medicine, you don't give them the medicine. Um, but yeah, it all comes down to approaching the patient at their level and, and explaining to them um, in, in honest and lay terms why you're doing something or why you're not doing something. So, hey, you, you have hit on so many high notes about the value, the importance, the thrill of being in, in medicine, as well as the honor and responsibility associated with it, the teaching, the learning. Um, as a closeout question, uh, two years ago, where was your career headed? And today, where is your career headed? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> two years ago, probably during intern year, um, I was kind of considering a few options for, you know, what, where, where would I go? What would I do? Would I be an ER doctor um, here? Would I uh, consider going back to Arizona? Would I, um, there were, uh, there was the um, NASA fellowship in mind, the aerospace medicine. And um, now I can pretty confidently say that, you know, I'm going to apply for the aerospace medicine fellowship and I'm going to, you know, carry on that route. Um, I'm also involved in a lot of policy work for physicians things that protect physicians from, you know, harmful, harmful effects like termination if they speak out against um, a corporate thing because of, for like with regards to patient care. So there's a lot of policy work that I do too, and that's gotten my interest. So um, I'm going to pursue either of those two routes. It's going to either be aerospace medicine uh, with NASA, or I'm going to kind of step my foot into policy more and see if I could change the culture of medicine to be a lot more friendly for true medicine without as much corporate greed. And I was just going to say that we're developing our aerospace medicine curriculum here too at the College of Medicine Phoenix. So let's keep in touch on that. That's awesome. And I wish, and I love your goals. And thank you for just, you know, giving everything and all of your talents back to populations that need it absolutely most and practicing at the top of your license. I can't tell you how, uh, how nice it's been to talk with you and kind of know how, how much you're putting everything you've got to good use. I appreciate it. Thank you so home, much. Home and abroad. So thank you for that. We, we really are blessed to do what we do. And I think that, you know, it's, it's difficult to see that like in training when you're kind of, you know, you're, everything is being pulled, like you're being pulled in every direction. But when you actually step into the clinical realm and at the patient's bedside, you understand how much, you know, how much blessing you've been given to do what you do and how, how important your skills actually are. And, you know, I, every day that I go to work, I feel like I'm a little more recharged than I am drained. And I think that, that I have truly found my calling and I really am blessed to do what I do. And um, I want to give back. This is kind of, this is why we went into medicine. And I, and I am really honestly honored and blessed to do what I do. And I, um, and I appreciate all the education that I've gotten from uh, U of A uh, because, you know, we really have gotten an incredible education. We've learned incredible skills that you use in residency and that you fine tune um, before you kind of go out into the world and treat patients. Hey, I have one, one final question I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind giving us some insight. I think you're, this has been so inspirational and some of our listeners, I'm sure are going to be even more inspired to pursue a career in medicine. And what do you have to say to those, to those listeners? Uh, 
that are really already interested and maybe even more excited about a career in medicine? I think medicine is a fascinating career um, if, if it's a calling for you. I think that, that the work to become a doctor is difficult, whether it be whether you're starting as a pre-med or just in medical school itself. It is a lot of work to be a physician. Um, but to those that are truly motivated that really want to do this for the rest of for the rest of their lives, I'd say just continue doing as much as you can toward the field. If you're truly passionate about this, you're going to try to your best, whether it comes to your classes or the MCAT or whatever it may be. Um, and of course, you know, becoming a doctor isn't just, um, you know, your scores and your numbers. It is also being a human being and being a good human being, knowing how to communicate with other people. Um, there's so many facets that go into medicine. And for those that really want to do this, um, you know, push yourself and, and do it. Um, the only barrier to becoming a physician, I think, is, is you yourself. Um, but if you're truly motivated and you really want to do this, then, you know, be the best in every facet of your life that you can be and um, apply. Yeah, there, those are great words of advice. The, the bottom line is that physicians have other people's lives literally in their hands. And if you're not understanding the biochemistry that's resulting in the conditions of the heart or the lungs or the liver at that moment, it makes it more challenging. Or if you don't understand the pharmacology of the drugs. And so the candidates really need to be the best. And as accurate or flawed as they are, the tests and the GPA speak to that. And they, totally. they help to set those bars, but they also make it hard to get into medical school. You know, I yeah. think the current rate is roughly 2% of applicants, you know, those whose guidance counselors have said, yes, go ahead and apply, are getting in. Um, Definitely. It makes it more challenging. If, if it were easy to be a doctor, then I think that you would see a pretty significant increase in the death rate. You know, this is not, medicine is a very, very complex profession, a lot of moving parts. And like you touched on, you know, your, your college education, your biochemistry, um, you know, your organic chemistry, your physics, all of these things actually have a huge role to play in medicine, you know, whether it be through, whether it be arterial flow or just pharmacology um, or cellular biology, you know, you have to understand these principles when you're looking at someone with pathology. So being the best at that, you know, getting your, your A's or, you know, doing well in your classes is fundamental to doing well in medical school, which is fundamental in doing well in patient care. So all of these things have an effect on each other. And, um, you know, that's why I think scores do matter. These things do kind of represent, you know, how well do you know this information? Because if you don't know it well, you're going to set yourself up for flaws in your medical school education which are then going to be flaws in your patient care. Um, but yeah, as a whole, you know, there are so many moving parts to medicine that um, if you just take the science and the humanity and the ability to do research and you combine them together, then you have what truly is medicine. And all these parts work in tandem to create what essentially is a physician. Yeah. Hey, most of the time that people are on podcasts, it's because they've just written an inspirational book I think rather we've outlined your inspirational book <laughs> for your next podcast. To come. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. It's been inspirational. I've loved reconnecting with you. And I know that our listeners have learned so much from you and your experiences so far. I look forward to seeing where your career takes you next. 
Thank you so much. Thank you both a lot. Thank you, Hank. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Of course. Well, that was a powerful, powerful episode, Johnny. And it was just amazing to be reconnected with one of our graduates. Inspirational on so many levels. And I think that one of the things that he said, I, I think resonates with us, that we've all been reminded a lot during these difficult pandemic times, exactly why we went into the areas we've chosen to go into. And we've, uh, we've really had to put our skills to use and, and hearing how he's been able to do this globally and at home battling this pandemic, it was just very inspirational and, and, and amazing to hear about. Unquestionably, as a research scientist and as an educator, the rewards come many years after you put the work in. And knowing that we put this work into Haig and all of his classmates so many years ago and hearing how he is recommitted to service, he trusts evidence in the medicine that he does, um, and he has humanity for his patients, is exactly why we do what we do. Uh, the, past, the past months during COVID have felt like decades, uh, and this gives us a light that there are frontline soldiers working to get us through this uh, together and grateful to be part of the, the larger enterprise that's getting this work done. Absolutely. So Katie, we ran a little long today and uh, we're going to tune in or we're asking our listeners to tune in next month for another exciting discussion that's changing medicine and changing our own perspectives. So lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. And bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license.